Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Against Moral Saints on the anarchic affinities between George Orwell and Oscar Wilde with author and anarchist Christian Williams. Our opening song is Oscillate Wildly by The Smiths off of their 1987 compilation album, The World Won't Listen. Today we speak with anarchist author Christian Williams about his interest in George Orwell and Oscar Wilde, seemingly quite disparate thinkers to attract one's admiration. But it turns out that Williams isn't the first anarchist to be interested in them. It also turns out that Orwell himself admired Wilde, writing in a letter to a friend that he'd always been pro-Wilde. Williams writes in his book of essays on Orwell, Between the Bullet and the Lie, that it is a strange thing to hear from Orwell, given his disdain for Nancy poets, pious sodomites, and the pansy left. But the Orwell that Williams discusses has much in common with Oscar Wilde, in particular the ways both saw aesthetics, ethics, and politics as often impossible to separate, and the necessary stance one must take against moral saints, absolutists making no room for actual human experience and expression. Both raise questions about the relationships between culture and politics, between utopian aspirations and practical programs, and between individualism, group identity, and class struggle. Oscar Wilde is remembered as a wit and a dandy, as a gay martyr, and as a brilliant writer, but his philosophical depth and political radicalism are often forgotten. In Williams's new book, Resist Everything Except Temptation, The Anarchist Philosophy of Oscar Wilde, he locates Wilde in the tradition of left-wing anarchism and argues that only when we take his politics seriously can we begin to understand the man, his life, and his work. Both Resist Everything Except Temptation and Between the Bullet and the Lie are published by AK Press. Christian Williams is also the author of Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America, and was on Interchange previously with segment host Dan Young. And we begin perhaps where we left off, by asking for William's thoughts on the most recent police protests and what consequences we might expect, and then we'll find out what anarchism means for Williams. And now, Against Moral Saints, with Christian Williams, on Interchange, on WFHB. If you don't mind, Christian, can you give us just a little of your own background, uh, who you are, uh, and obviously you're an author, uh, but a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Let's see. I started writing kind of as an extension from my political work. I was um, engaged in work around uh, police accountability and police abolition work since like the mid-90s, um, and wrote a book called Our Enemies in Blue that came out originally in 2004, is now in its third edition. Um and have since been trying to write less about things that make me angry and more about things that I like. My most recent book is called Resist Everything Except Temptation, The Anarchist Philosophy of Oscar Wilde, which I've been working on for practically 20 years. Um, and it just came out this month from AK Press. My day job, I'm a drawbridge operator. 
Um, I live in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so you mentioned uh, our enemies in blue, obviously, and you've been on Interchange before. Back, uh, it's been a while now, but with Interchange producer Dan Young talking about that specific book, did you expect this nationwide reaction to the George Floyd murder? And do you have a sense that this anti-police or anti-policing position of in so many communities will continue? I didn't see the particular um, events. I didn't foresee the particular events occurring as they have. Uh, in retrospect, it seems very understandable. The, the question is always, it's not why did this incident produce these consequences? It's why didn't all the others, right? Because mm-hmm. um, the police kill about a thousand people a year. This doesn't usually happen. I think some of it is the particular iconography of the actual incident, the, the literal knee on the neck. And I think some of it is the way that this, the George Floyd killing echoes previous incidents. Um, obviously Eric Garner with the pleading of I can't breathe. Also Oscar Grant with the, um, handcuffed black man face down just being murdered. And I think some of it is the peculiar circumstances of 2020 with the, um, polarization that already exists politically. And then the, um, fact that people had been sort of cooped up in their houses for three months mm-hmm. and the dire economic outlook, you know, the high unemployment, like I think all of that was just a very, um, the right combination for things to explode in terms of how it continues. I mean, I wouldn't have expected to see again in Portland, like 45 nights of riotous demonstrations in a row. Like it's already exceeded what I would have expected just in terms of crowd stamina. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think that once the unrest subsides, there's still going to be a reckoning coming uh, in terms of sort of deciding how our society moves forward, given the recent events. And, you know, simple, like as satisfying as it is in some way, like taking down Confederate statues is the easy part, right? Mm -hmm. Like dismantling the entire structure of white supremacy. That's a much bigger order. You know, a lot of these issues, uh, authority, power, force, coercion, compulsion, you know, all these things are a part of what you work on and and what your books are about. And so it's not hard to to pivot from there, obviously. Now, uh, a little bit more about you. You you are uh, or claim claim to be an anarchist. It's a label you're not afraid of, which is good. Um, But uh, that it always begs definition for most people. So uh, because anarchists always have been easy targets in the U.S. for vilification, generally cast as dynamite throwing immigrants uh, generally of the eastern european variety uh, one can see how easily this then flows into a, or is conflated with uh, the arab or muslim as terrorist and you know anarchism just becomes one of those dangerous uh, violent creatures that everybody uh, fears on some level and misunderstands even what the word means. Uh, so if you don't mind, give us a, a brief definition or your your version of anarchism and what it means to be an anarchist. Sure. My, my political thinking begins with the axiom that decisions should be made by the people most affected by them. And really, I, I think that that is inherent to any sense of um, individual autonomy, any sense of liberty. And from that, from the idea that decisions should be made by the people most affected by them, I think it stands to reason that authority can only be legitimate to the degree that it is not just consented to, but actually controlled by the people that um, the authority is in some way exercised over. And so the people who ultimately decide what happens in a neighborhood should probably be the people in the neighborhood. They probably shouldn't be bureaucrats in some planning office who have never visited that neighborhood. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is anarchist author Christian Williams, and our show is Against Moral Saints on the politics and philosophy of two writers who, by reputation at least, must stand as almost antithetical figures, George Orwell and Oscar Wilde. But we can turn to both for insight, even anarchist insight, as once again we are confronted with fascism and debates about the strengths of democracy or socialism to fight it. The workplace uh, shouldn't be simply a dictatorship by the person who happens to have enough money to own a business, but instead should be controlled democratically by the people who work in the in the workplace. That's not to say they can't delegate management responsibilities to somebody who's going to do things like set schedules and order supplies and you know that sort of stuff. But even the purpose of that position should be to execute the will of the the workers themselves, not simply to maximize profit. Different kinds of institutions may become more complicated, like schools. There's a real um, balance to be struck between the teachers as workers needing to have control over their work and also the students as um, the people who are, in a way, um, being shaped by this institution, needing to have some sort of say in how instruction is done and course content and that sort of thing. In general, I see it I see anarchism more as um, a kind of orientation toward the society which maximizes freedom and equality um, and against the unaccountable hierarchies and status inequalities. What the free and equal society of the future ultimately looks like, I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of figuring out to do there. And there's a lot of unknown and there's a lot of that will need to be determined by circumstances. But the direction of my thought is that we need to be pursuing political changes that bring that kind of world more into being and avoid political solutions that reinforce hierarchies, reestablish new authorities, that sort of thing, which is historically maybe the main division between anarchism and Marxism. Marxism being very happy to establish a dictatorship as long as there's the promise of eventual um, withering away and anarchism thinking that any move toward dictatorship is a step in the wrong direction. Kropotkin comes to my head as an anarchist uh, thinker generally. He's obviously probably one of the most well-known, but are there others that you feel uh, are useful to you? Um, of the classical anarchists, I would say Kropotkin is definitely the largest influence on my thinking. Um, he was a Russian prince who became involved in revolutionary politics and for his trouble was imprisoned and then exiled and wrote extensively about both the principles of anarchism and also how they can be actually embodied in institutions and social arrangements. His most famous work was a book called Mutual Aid, a Factor in Evolution. And in that, he looked at the ways that um, cooperation within species and sometimes even between species carries an evolutionary advantage. And that rather than society being this sort of bloody knuckled contest between atomic individuals, that instead society is better understood as this vast cooperative uh, project and that the more we develop sort of solidaristic habits and the more we develop uh, the practices of cooperation, the less reliant we are on coercion and also the, the more we tend to prosper as, as individuals, as communities, and ultimately as a species. His influence extends beyond anarchism. He's been influential in the social sciences and the biological sciences in geography. For a person that not very many people have heard of, he is very influential. In terms of contemporary anarchism, um, I think Noam Chomsky's critique of American imperialism and really American power more generally, um, also the 
sort of cooperation between intellectuals and the states and the media and the government. His analysis of how power operates in the present period, um, I think, has been very influential on me and seemingly a lot of other people as well. I was a miner. I was a docker. I was a train driver between the wars. It's time for a break. This is Between the Wars by Billy Bragg from the Peel Sessions album. This was recorded in September of 1984. More with anarchist author Christian Williams on George Orwell and Oscar Wilde when Interchange returns on WFHB. I look to the government to help the working man and I brought prosperity down at the armory we're arming for peace me boys between the wars I kept the faith and I kept boating not for the iron fist but for the helping hand this is a land with a wall around it and mine is a faith in my fellow man. This is a land of hope and glory. Mine is the greenfield and the factory floor. There's are the skies all dark with bombers and mine is the peace we know. Draftsmen build me a path from cradle to grave. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Against Moral Saints on the anarchic affinities between George Orwell and Oscar Wilde. In this segment, author Christian Williams traces Wilde's own assertions of anarchism as something contained within the quote unquote big tent of socialism in the late 19th century. And then we turn to Orwell on the ethical principle of decency. Heart of this nation, desert us not, we are between the walls. The one thing that um, that struck me is that I don't know that too many people would would put George Orwell or Oscar Wilde on that list, and you've chosen these two writers as subjects of recent books of essays you've written. Uh, Between the Bullet and the Lie is the Orwell book, and as you mentioned already, Resist Everything Except Temptation is the Oscar Wilde book as well. And uh, it seems interesting to me that you're not the first anarchist to have interest in these writers. I think it was George Woodcock, uh, who died in 1995, also an anarchist, though a Canadian. (laughs) has written studies on them both also. So why are these two men interesting to anarchists? They wouldn't have called themselves anarchists, would they have? Um, Wilde called himself an anarchist on two occasions. Once in a interview in which he said, yes, I'm a socialist, but, you know, we're all socialists nowadays and I must be something more. So I think I'm an anarchist. 
and another in a um, in a questionnaire that he filled out for a French magazine where he said that uh, it was in French, but the English translation roughly is once I was a poet and a tyrant, but now I am an artist and an anarchist. And he made sort of oblique references to his association with anarchism fairly commonly through his life. But the tendency that he probably would have been generally identified with at the time would have been socialism, which was understood at the time as this really big tent philosophy that included included anarchists, included Marxists, included Fabians like George Bernard Shaw. And, you know, it was sort of a, a broad and nebulous milieu in which all kinds of people could circulate with all kinds of different politics. Right, right. Um, and he and in his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, he makes a direct reference to being sort of unconcerned with how how you actually label his politics. He begins one sentence with socialism or communism or whatever we decided to call it, meaning just sort of the label just isn't isn't the thing to focus on. But the argument of my book is that if we take his politics seriously, they are substantively anarchist. And then also that he was self-consciously writing in as part of an anarchist tradition and that he was very influenced by people like Kropotkin, people like Proudhon. And then his work, Wilde's work, was picked up and also influenced later generation of anarchists like Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman. The work of the book is partly making the argument that sort of excavating what Wilde's politics were, making the argument that just in terms of what his program was, it was anarchist. And then secondly, situating him as a figure as part of this longer tradition that sort of began with Godwin and continues today. It's an interesting thing to think of socialism as a big tent, uh, meaning what, not capitalism, not power, not aristocracy, you know, anything not those things that have already ruled us? I think the rejection of capitalism was probably the thing that all of those different factions had in common. In terms of how far the negation extends and also what they hope to come later, and maybe most of all, how they hope to bring about the new society, it was a very diverse movement at the time. And the hard ideological lines had not really been drawn very well. So, mm-hmm. you know, people like um, William Morris, he identified as a Marxist, but his political program was practically indistinguishable from Kropotkin's in terms of what they wanted society to look like. Um, the main difference was that Kropotkin thought that if we just do away with the existing institutions, then the natural cooperative impulse would come to the, the surface and new egalitarian institutes would come about. And William Morris thought that we needed to build the new egalitarian institutions to replace the um, authoritarian institutions before starting on the process of tearing things down. Today, I think there are as many anarchists, probably more anarchists who would um, side with Morris on that dispute rather than um, Kropotkin, whereas the kind of thinking that William Morris engaged in seems very removed from what we generally think of today as Marxism. So mm-hmm. at the time, Morris thought of himself as a Marxist, but today he would seem to be much closer to anarchism. Um, it's just a matter of those positions sort of crystallizing over time and the, the context looking different in retrospect. Orwell himself had uh, had interest in Wilde's work also. Uh, we didn't we're not going to claim Orwell as an anarchist, I'm I'm pretty sure, but um but certainly um perhaps uh something of an individualist. It's hard to really assimilate Orwell into any one camp because he was so invested in maintaining his his own point of view. He was not going to buy a party line. It did not matter what party you were. What he did like consistently identify as 
is a socialist. And by that, he meant specifically something very broad about like he would often create formulations that were things like, well, socialism really just means justice and common decency. Socialism is really just democracy without capitalism. And in practical politics, as much as he was always happy to sort of burst anarchist bubbles in terms of their uh, rhetoric and their theory, um, that was a place that he very often ended up close to, right? So in um, he fought in the Spanish Civil War, and he fought with PUM, which was the uh, Party of Marxist Unification, sort of heterodox Marxist group. But PUM was actually in the command structure of the CNT, which was the anarcho-syndicalist uh, union. You know, he went to Spain and he joined a Marxist group, but it was a Marxist group that was associated with the anarchists and not a Marxist group that was associated with the communists. You know, later he was, um, he was personal friends with George Woodcock, who wrote, um, a book about him. And then also, as you mentioned, wrote the book about Wilde. Um, and in the period between the wars when Orwell was desperately looking to avoid a second world war, he was very like closely associated, aligned with Woodcock and um, the anarchist journal freedom and the, um, the sort of anarchist pacifist um, tendency, which of course is then the tendency that he attacks most in print. Well, except for communists. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is anarchist author Christian Williams, and our show is Against Moral Saints on the politics and philosophy of two writers who, by reputation at least, must stand as almost antithetical figures, George Orwell and Oscar Wilde. But we can turn to both for insight, even anarchist insight, as once again we are confronted with fascism and debates about the strengths of democracy or socialism to fight it. You think we could just um, maybe talk about decency because uh, in in talking about decency becomes a something of a primary ethical principle for Orwell, uh, but not necessarily a definitive one or one in which we could necessarily define what decency is. We should all know what it is, I suppose. Yeah, I think that is exactly what he thought, is that um, that not only does it not need a definition, because decent people will just know it when they see it, but also that to try to define it may be to invite abuse of the term to invite people to like just barely skirt the you know what it might demand or prohibit and that instead it was better conceived as uh, a sort of virtue of something that is dispositional and broad and necessarily a little bit vague but also very real when you're confronted with it right it was interesting to think of you know again how it's it's easy to sometimes talk about decency in an anti-capitalist space, which which Orwell frequently does, decency is a a figure uh, that comes to mind when when he uh, is writing uh, homage to Catalonia as well. Um, he talks about the that there's nobody scheming in right. in that space. You know that we're working together. We're happy to give our last cigarette, take the whole pack. Um, there's just a general decency. Uh, when people aren't scheming to get one up on you. And that's that's generally the capitalist perspective, you know, to put one over, to get one up. Uh, and this doesn't happen in these situations uh, that he speaks about when he's in, in, in Spain, when he talks about his own anarchist tendencies, perhaps decency has something of an anarchist tinge to it. I went way ahead there and uh, I went way forward because I know that it has a sense of the bourgeois to right. right? Yeah, so, but, and I don't. I, and, I, and in a sense, I was trying to 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 wrench it out of that space. So let let, let me speak up for the bourgeoisie here, because sure. um, he does say, um, like he also uses the phrase to mean some things about 
sort of physical comfort, right? So it's not just people who are decent. It's also things like houses and uh, clothing can be decent and that sort of thing. And there's an element there where there is a middle class perspective of what makes those things what they are. Like the, what makes those things, what makes a suit of clothes decent? What makes a house decent? That sort of thing. There, there's an element that it's like, well, it's not poverty, right? Right. The way that I think that connects to the sort of moral element is that Orwell was smart enough to see that living in destitute circumstances does not necessarily make people better, that instead it leads to it can lead to a kind of desperation. It can lead to a lack of self-respect. It can lead to the necessities of sort of reconciling yourself to this brutalizing existence, which can in turn then make you more brutal. And so he saw that certain and again, this actually, I think, gets to some of the connections between him and Wilde. Um, he saw that social arrangements in which people generally have their needs met help people to be their best selves, right? help people to behave more decently, that being overworked and half starved is not a very good recipe for people to like be considerate and kind, right? At the same time, he also saw what, um, what you were describing in Spain. And what he said was that the remarkable thing about that experience was that the, the decency of the Spanish people was so great that it could make even the opening stages of socialism tolerable. He thought that the transition from capitalism to socialism was just going to be a hardship, that there was going to be a, dec- a at least short term decline in the overall standard of living, that there was going to be like struggle and sacrifice, that there was going to be um, a certain amount of uncertainty and chaos. And what amazed him was that in those um, kind of unpromising circumstances, while also fighting a war against fascism, the sort of national character of the Spaniards was such that they still managed to be decent and kind and caring about one another, and maybe even more so because they could see that the hardship that they were enduring was trying for something better. The, his, the other formulation of, of decency, I think, um, was his uh, Christian upbringing and decency was sort of the ethical core of Christianity, just with all of the superstition taken out. And yeah. while Orwell ceased believing in God sometime in his early teens, he maintained a very strong Christian moral outlook, um, very subconsciously for his whole life. And he thought that it was important not to go too far in the direction of sort of bur- burning down all of the sort of ideological framework that 2000 years of culture had built. Um, he wanted to maintain that core of sort of altruism and generosity and forgiveness and that sort of thing. Other regarding openness that uh, a certain kind of Christianity puts in the center. It's just he wanted to do that without necessarily uh, a lot of stories about people going to heaven or burning in hell. <laughs> right, right. Mr. Love and Justice, please tell me. It's time for another break, and here's another from Billy Bragg, Mr. Love and Justice, off the 2008 album of the same name. When we return to Against Moral Saints, the notion of decency offers a path through capitalism and totalitarianism. Stay with us on Interchange. I wanna make 
to Interchange on WFHB. We continue with anarchist author Christian Williams, who's written books on George Orwell and Oscar Wilde, both published by AK Press. In this segment, we take a closer look at why both Orwell and Wilde are against moral saints. It's not just that saints aren't much fun to be around. And then we turn to the prevalence of Jesus as anarchist artist in Wilde's greatest essays. Pick myself up and move on well, uh, I think specifically uh, decency, you know, reflects intellectual honesty, uh, generous spirit, and a desire for equality. Those are the things that you're uh, named in the book, uh, and that you can't be decent if you're if you're scheming to be otherwise. One of the essential aspects of it, I suppose. You've done a good job of explaining how decency is at odds with the Mm -hmm. implicit ethics of capitalism. But the other term that it is opposed to would be totalitarianism. The power worshipping, the intellectual dishonesty, the self-deception, the the notion that um, anything that serves some particular purpose is uh, thereby good. Like all of that sort of mid-century thinking about, you know, anything for the good of the party. He also expressly contrasts that with decency. There's a sense in which decency um, has a social aspect and that if society is arranged such that people get their needs met, that it's more likely to produce decent people. But there's also a sense where decency absolutely relies on people remaining individuals. They right. can't just be organized into giant power blocks and maintain that sense of decency any more than they can just be cogs in the capitalist machine. You know, it's one of the things we get stuck in, you know, being anti-capitalist when you're living in a capitalist you know, society to not think of the flip side or not think that the other other modes of organization haven't been as, uh, as deadly or bad or that the capitalist is no different necessarily than the totalitarian or, you know, the wealth of, of capitalists are not... Uh, the same wealth of fascists. And it's never my intention to be solely anti-capitalist. You know, I think that the, the important part of both Wilde and Orwell is you're reading people who who are literally, you know, trying to stand as a person uh, and not being governed, not having to uh, be compelled to do particular things within a governing structure and that it's not good to be governed. So these are, I think, two men with the, that essential point uh, in their work. So that's anarchy. 
<laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up. You bring Orwell and Wilde together in your book on Orwell, and maybe it's a good place to show where their particular politics or um, their particular philosophies overlap. It's the ch- uh, the chapter titled "Not Too Good: Orwell, Wilde, and the Saints," and um, you do posit these two actually have affinities that we m- might not expect, and these are particularly their perspectives on morality and aesthetics. So, uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that that came about actually because I read a letter from Orwell to George Woodcock about Oscar Wilde, in which Orwell said that he had always been very pro-Wilde. That struck me as surprising. And then I read his review, Orwell's review of The Soul of Man Under Socialism, um, which is laudatory. Um, and I was expecting him to, you know, go after Wilde's utopianism to attack his sort of unrealistic, sort of fantastical, idealistic program. Um, but he doesn't do any of that. And instead, he says that the wild and similar writers help to remind us that socialism is about something besides party squabbles and, fu- and um, food cues, and that it, it helps us remember the, the half-forgotten ideal of a brotherhood of man. Thinking about that led me to consider that Orwell was able to recognize that he and Wilde were just, they were engaged in very different projects. And that he could appreciate Wilde's project, though it wasn't it, maybe because it wasn't his. And so the more I dug into that, the more I surprised myself by finding elements of Wilde's thinking in Orwell's. And in particular, they both confront this problem, which much later the philosopher Susan Wolfe described as the problem of moral saints, which is this notion that a morally perfect person would actually not be a very good person. And that trying to achieve moral perfection makes it impossible to have good relationships, um, would make you kind of an insufferable prig, would just cut off other sources of value and other and elements of life that make life worth living that are not themselves necessarily wrong. You know, things like, you know, being excited about playing tennis or enthusiastic about art or having kind of a, a wicked sense of humor. Like th- those aren't crimes, but a program of 100% morality tends to kind of crowd out those other values. And both Orwell and Wilde write about this. And what I argue as I look at their different approaches to writing about it is that um, they come to sort of opposite conclusions where Wilde keeps an ideal of perfection, but just gives up on morality and thinks that what we need is a model of human perfection that isn't one that's based on sort of a lot of thou shalt not. Whereas Orwell keeps morality, but just gives up on the idea of perfection and thinks that it's very important that there are some things that are obligatory and there are some things that are prohibited, but really we just shouldn't go too crazy about it. And we should recognize that no one is going to perfectly instantiate their ideals, no matter what they are. So that sort of metamoral paradox and there are different ways of reconciling it, I think, leads Wilde's politics into the area of utopianism and to talk a lot about the promise and beauty of an unrealized future. And Orwell's uh, rejection of perfectionism leads him into a kind of anti-utopianism where he becomes extremely suspicious of anything that promises any kind of like perfection. And he basically assumes that after the revolution, people are going to continue having petty rivalries and, you know, raising children and having drunken arguments in the streets and like all the sort of chaos and mess of human life will go on much as it has. It will just go on under overall conditions of justice. 
And so they end up with very different political perspectives, which I think turn on their attitude about moral perfection. But they feel something like uh, temperamental responses as much as anything else in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think Wilde's character tended to look for the beautiful and the not necessarily even the possible, but the promise of something wonderful coming forth. And I think Orwell, by disposition, was very pessimistic and tended to look at any sort of social arrangement and immediately ask himself how it could be abused, how it could go wrong. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is anarchist author Christian Williams, and our show is Against Moral Saints on the politics and philosophy of two writers who, by reputation at least, must stand as almost antithetical figures, George Orwell and Oscar Wilde. But we can turn to both for insight, even anarchist insight, as once again we are confronted with fascism and debates about the strengths of democracy or socialism to fight it. You do say um, that Orwell echoes wild pain as a protest and that pleasure is nature's test, uh, her sign of approval. I thought that was an interesting thing because you know Nor- Orwell writes frequently about nature and about pleasure in a way that sort of echoes the utopian focus that Wilde gives us. Yeah, Orwell's reputation is so much as a moralist that it's easy to overlook how much he talks about the aesthetics, how much he talks about the beauty of the world, how much he talks about the pleasure of life, how much he talks about um, uh, sex and nature and all that sort of like sunshine and roses stuff, which is just 100% not what we associate with him. Right, but there's right. actually a lot of it in his books. And even in 1984, the description of the terrible state of England under Ingsoc is largely conveyed by aesthetic description. I mean, there's a little, there's, you know, all the stuff in there about like the thought police and the torture and all that. But um, there's not a great deal of like political complaint about justice and that sort of thing. The political rhetoric of the book itself is relatively subdued. And instead, there's a lot of talk about how everything is broken and everything is grimy and the food is substandard and the gin is greasy. And the way that Winston Smith comes to his realization that he hates the regime is because life is unpleasant more than because life is unjust. His writing about um, about the Spanish Civil War and Amish Catalonia, Orwell ta- like talks in contrast to you know it being very everything being very hard, but it being bearable because the the sacrifice was shared, and that even though at the moment things were seeming pretty terrible, everyone was was aware of moving forward towards something better. So the relationship between sort of justice and suffering and the sense of the beauty of life and the beauty of the world, those concerns are very intertwined in Orwell's thinking. It, it is one of the things that, that struck me about 1984 in particular is the, you know, the um, especially obviously the uh, assignation with Julia, you know, it's out in, in nature and it is a beautiful, a beautiful thing. It's not dissimilar from, you know, the the scenes uh, or the wishful scenes in Coming Up for Air as well. You know, the idea to be back in a simpler time. Not It's not just nostalgia, It's it is, but it is a loss of, of that sort of ability to pre- appreciate things in a certain way that you're right he, you know it is clearer in some ways maybe in in the fiction uh, uh than in in most of what we read in his essays so so one of the things that struck me as i i think comparable is that sense of of being against conformism in particular you already noted 
uh, Orwell wanting very much to never belong to any particular party. We can note that Thoreau is something like this as well. Orwell, I think somewhere says, you know, to beware of the gramophone mind and to sort of focus on integrity to be for yourself or to understand your your own thinking. And uh, and Wilde is, is obviously in this camp as well. Both of them were pretty hostile to orthodoxy. They didn't want anything that was going to constrain their own thinking, their ability to imagine uh, something different, their own sense of criticism and their curiosity, their questioning approach. Like they, they also shared that in terms of disposition where um, neither of them were going to accept absurdities just because it would uh, make it easier to kind of get along. The book on Wilde, again, is uh, Resist Everything Except Temptation, the anarchist philosophy of Oscar Wilde. It's an interesting title. What struck me about it uh, as I was reading your book and I was reading some of the uh, work of Wilde as well was how much Jesus figures into Wilde's thinking. And I had no idea about that. And so I did want to, uh, I think, focus on that a little bit uh, because it, it just surprised me. But I am I, what I think is a normal, the common reader at best, which would know the performative wild, the, the, the wild as an icon, the wild as a celebrity, you know, the wild who was jailed, the wild uh, who spoke of the love that, you know, you cannot speak its name uh, and not so much the wild in his actual work. So, you know, this book uh, to me was fascinating and interesting in so many levels as well as taking me to those particular essays, um, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, as well as De Profundis, beautiful pieces, but that are so heavily Christian, you know, devoted to the idea of Jesus, the individualist, Jesus, the artist. Um, like it was a revelation to me, to be honest with you. So, you know, this is the, the, so the, the wild that kind of interested me uh, to try to understand that because it's, you know, it sort of works against what I assume most of us think of wild in the first place. Certainly not a, a, a Christian or certainly not a, a religious thinker, but these, to me, these two books are profoundly religious or two, two pieces, two works. Yeah, and that, and that continues as well in his last poem, The Ballad of Rotting Jail, where there's a lot of Christian imagery in that, and there's a lot of contrasting the open-hearted and forgiving nature of Jesus with the judgmental and sort of pinched moralism of the actual religious authorities. Some of that is his strategy all along, of sort of invoking Jesus as this figure in a very particular aspect of Jesus— the sort of antinomian Jesus, right? The Jesus who was not a bringer of a law, but instead the Jesus who thought that love could forgive anything. Counterposing that figure with the institution of the church and the dictates of the clergy and what Weber will later characterize as the Protestant ethic, that sort of notion that your spiritual life and your work life are the same and that the way that you serve God is by making a lot of money. Wilde invokes this this other more romantic, more artistic, more liberatory figure of Jesus as a way of, of sort of showing up uh, what Christianity had become. I'm with you. I, I think he did it very effectively. It's time for our final break. We'll turn back to the Smiths with This Charming Man off of their self-titled debut album from 1984. Stay with us for more on Interchange.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. This is our final segment with Christian Williams, author of Between the Bullet and the Lie, a book of essays on George Orwell, and the new book Resist Everything Except Temptation, the anarchist philosophy of Oscar Wilde. We begin with further discussion of Wilde's great essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, which Orwell praised, and then we close with the politics of gay identity born out of the sensationalist swirl of Wilde's trial and imprisonment for sodomy. Solo Man Under Socialism is, is a beautiful piece of work. One of the things that we focus on there is, is simply the fact that you know, labor for another, labor under capitalism, labor uh, that isn't uh, something you do to bring yourself joy and pleasure is obviously a, a drudgery, obviously not good for you, obviously bad for the soul. You know, that's the soul of man under capitalism. Property is bad. Authority is bad. These things degrade everyone. You know, I guess everybody always says when you talk about socialism or you talk about anarchism or you talk about art and beauty, you know, everybody in, always wants to know, well, what's next or what does that mean or how do we live or, you know, all those kinds of things. And the essay isn't really about that. It's about understanding the de- degraded nature of your life, of your being, and having examples about ways not to be degraded. And Jesus is a central one. The the title of that essay, I think, was pretty carefully chosen. Like, he's not putting forward really an economic program or anything like that. Like, right. he's really interested in what, how social arrangements shape, you know, as, as he puts it, our soul. But you could also say our character, our imagination, our being, right? right. Um, and he starts with the argument you were just recounting about the way that working for other people um, and sort of serving their interests and suppressing your own desires is not just degrading, but demoralizing, right? Yeah. Um, and then opens up this possibility that the purpose of socialism is that it would relieve us of that kind of degradation and alienation, and that would make it possible for people to become individuals. That's not the sort of stock way of understanding socialism. Like we, in our society, we tend to identify individualism with capitalism and socialism with you know, something else, like the destruction of individualism, because we tend to think of individualism in purely economic terms. Right. Um, and what he's digging at and what the, the figure of Jesus helps him articulate is that there's a deeper kind of individualism, which is about becoming the unique being that only you can be. And that the constraints of capitalism and the constraints of authority distort that, deform that. And that the possibility of being free of economic worries and being free of the demands of you know, a boss and a landlord and the government and all that opens up this possibility for, for real individualism to flourish. We were speaking of, of the capitalist idea of individualism, the American idea even of individualism, of rugged individualism, all these things that um, he basically says individualism in that, in that way is conformism. Wealth, property, work in this way, uh, thinking in this way, uh, thinking to get ahead in these ways, create conformist ideas. You know, it, it stops you from thinking the way you might want to think because you have to apply yourself to the particular social uh, expectations, the particular economic expectations. So you cannot be an individualist, even when you're performing 
in a way that you think might be individualist. You're working towards what others think of you, what the society might think of you as well. Um, so the socialism allowing the ability to not be concerned about uh, in particular money, in particular property, uh, not be concerned about how you're going to feed yourself or be clothed or um, those kinds of things allows you to seek those pleasures in art in particular, but in any kind of labor that is for your own pleasure. Uh, and then thus you'll you'll discover, as you say, the, the person you are going to be or become. It's, it spells that out really nicely. And I, it's really an essay I wish everyone I knew would read. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, really, I'm a fan. I wrote a whole book about it. Well, it's a good book, uh, and 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 like I said, it was an interesting thing for me because I hadn't really thought about wild in this in these ways. Um, I have a book. I think it's edited by Richard Elman, the artist as critic. It's critical writings of Oscar Wilde, and I I just I just uh, flipped to the. Uh, I think it's a review of a. Um, a new translation of Twang Tzu or something like that. And it was funny to read some of what was in that particular essay in The Soul of Man Under Socialism. You know, so to go from, you know, this individualist anti-government in the period of uh, Jesus and then also be indicating that, you know, the thinkers, uh, anarchist thinkers in particular, but anti-government thinkers from 4th century BC as well is is pretty fascinating. And, and the way that maybe those things are sort of bubbling under the surface of, of dealing with authoritarian governments at the time. I mean, we've talked about the sort of Christian element, but there is also a real uh, Taoist influence on Wilde's mm. work. Encountering Lao Tzu writing that review um, had a real effect on Wilde's thinking overall and really marked a kind of turning point. Um, it's not something that I got into especially much in um, yeah. the couple hundred pages that were available to me. But yeah, you're, you're, it's smart that you picked up on that. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is anarchist author Christian Williams, and our show is Against Moral Saints on the politics and philosophy of two writers who, by reputation at least, must stand as almost antithetical figures, George Orwell and Oscar Wilde. But we can turn to both for insight, even anarchist insight, as once again we are confronted with fascism and debates about the strengths of democracy or socialism to fight it. I did think the point in a different chapter, this is the language of love, posing, speaking, naming, queering. Uh, what was interesting to me was just the sort of coming up against the idea of homosexuality and heterosexuality as sort of terms in the making at the time. The creation of identity that happens in Wilde's time was also a revelation to me. The, you know, the idea of these kind of terms becoming more political or becoming politicized and creating identity that I would assume Wilde would be against in, in many ways. Yeah, it's it's a complicated whole array of conundrums. Um, the uh, I mean, the, those terms weren't just becoming politicized. They were coined for political purposes. Right. Um, and the and some of that was that there were men who liked to have sex with men who were trying to push against the social prohibition on that and trying and in order to do that needed a way of articulating their desires needed a way of sort of um, legitimating it that wasn't the old and prohibited notion of sodomy and the the shift there was that the sodomy was just a sin or a crime that or a temptation that like anyone could commit and anyone might succumb to kind of like theft right there's nothing sort of deep in your existential core that makes a person a thief. The thing that makes you a thief is that you steal something. And sodomy was viewed sort of on that 
at that same level. And there was an effort in order to legitimize it that wanted to say that there was something different about people who about men who wanted to have sex with men. And the the model that was developed was sort of a, a medical model that relied on this theory that was called inversion, which was that um, at some point in gestation, the development of the the soul went one route and the development of the body went another route. And so that there and so you end up with sort of feminine souls and masculine bodies, which from a 2020 perspective is interesting because that's a formulation that would now be more associated with like trans politics. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the time, that was sort of the politicized hypothesis of um, explaining what would then become termed homosexuality. And then the term heterosexuality was created as sort of the thing that homosexuality was in contradistinction to. So at this period, there was a, a deliberate political effort to invent homosexuality as an identity and to express it as this thing that was inborn and immutable and natural. Interestingly, there was also uh, a countervailing, for lack of a better term, gay politics uh, that was largely associated with um, German individualist anarchists who thought that all of that was nonsense. <laughs> and that, first of all, they were worried that giving it a medical description would send people off looking for a cure mm-hmm. and that they would become pathologized, which I think was a smart insight on their part. And secondly, they felt like that they weren't sort of female souls and male bodies, but that they were like really, really, really men. In fact, they were so much men that they just like didn't have anything to do with women. And they want their politics developed more toward not talking about, you know, inborn traits and natural processes and souls and all of that, but just talking about uh, at the level of freedom, whether people should be free to explore their sexuality in whatever way they choose to without necessarily building a an identity around it. Wilde's work in this area was um, was complicated. He wrote a beautiful story called The Portrait of Mr. W.H., which I do not have time to summarize. But the, um, <laughs> it's a very long story. Yeah. It's very long and it's very convoluted. Yeah. But it's specifically a defense of homosexuality um, or what we would now call homosexuality. It's a defense of, of men loving men. And, it, you know, it, it involves uh hypothesis that um, Shakespeare sonnets were written to a young man named Willie Hughes, who was the Mr. W.H. of the title. One person has this theory, they convey it to somebody else. That person becomes obsessed with the theory, goes looking for evidence for it, doesn't find evidence for it, but ends up fabricating evidence for it, and then kills themselves after telling somebody else the story, which then leads them into exactly the same process. Right. And uh, my take on this is that ultimately, Wilde makes this sort of argument that it's fine to have the story. It's fine to have this um, this sort of construction of an identity or of you know a community or however you want to sort of play that out. But it's important that you remember that it is just something you came up with. And that if you start thinking that it is a metaphysical like fact in some way, that you're uh, on a on a route that is um, likely going to lead you on a wild goose chase trying to prove that, but may also undermine your faith in it and um, lead you to sort of in like a self-destructive direction. It, it's not really a hostility to the notion of identity, but it's a very uh, careful way of holding 
the concept of identity. The irony, of course, is that because all of this was happening at exactly the time that Wilde was arrested and prosecuted and revealed as a sodomite and then imprisoned for it, cemented him in particular as the image that was emerging of a homosexual, of as like a type of person. Right. And so a lot of the the sort of stereotypes of what gay men are like trace back to exactly that period and exactly Wilde's trials, which means that though he himself was issuing this sort of warning about ossifying your desires in a, you know, what we would now call an identity, the figure who was in, who was issuing that warning became the prototype for the identity that would emerge over the next, in the English speaking world anyway, over the next hundred years. I was minding my business, lifting some land off the roof of a hole in a church. It was worthwhile living a laughable life, setting my eyes on the distant signs of the liturgy. That's our show. We'll close with another selection from the Smiths. This is Vicar in a Tutu from the 1986 album The Queen is Dead. Thanks to Christian Williams for joining us today as we wed the political philosophies of George Orwell and Oscar Wilde under the banner of socialism with a special focus on art and individualism. Again, his books are Between the Bullet and the Lie on Orwell and Resist Everything Except Temptation on Oscar Wilde. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Astros,